0: The House will return Wednesday and stay in session through Friday. The Senate will return Monday and stay in session through Thursday. Last week in the House, the House officially came back to work on Wednesday with a vote, successful this time, to elect a speaker. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Then the House took up H. 771, a resolution to stand with Israel as it defends itself against the barbaric war launched by Hamas and other terrorists. Under suspension of the rules, the resolution passed by a vote of 412 to 10. On Thursday, the House took up H.R. 4304, the Energy and Water Development Appropriations Act. It dealt with many amendments, uh, 28 of them, and agreed to three of them. Then the House voted to pass the bill as amended by a vote of 210 to 199. And then they were done. This week in the House, the House will return Wednesday, with the first vote scheduled for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to consider six bills under suspension of the rules. Each of the bills is related to one aspect or another of what's going on in the Middle East right now. For example, one declares that the policy of the United States that a nuclear Iran is unacceptable. A second urges the European Union to designate Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. On Thursday and Friday, the House is set to consider H.R. 4364, the Legislative Branch Appropriations Act for FY24, H.R. 4821, the Department of the Interior, Environment and Related Agencies Appropriations Act for FY24, and H.R. 4820, the Transportation, Housing and Urban Development and Related Agencies Appropriations Act. For FY24. In addition, the House may consider H.Res 773, providing for the expulsion of Representative George Santos from the House of Representatives. H.Res 807, censuring Representative Rashida Tlaib for anti Semitic activity, sympathizing with terrorist organizations, and leading an insurrection at the United States Capitol complex. And H. Res. 610, censuring Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. In addition, the Speaker announced Sunday that the House will take up an as yet undesignated standalone emergency supplemental spending bill containing $14.5 billion for Israel. Last week in the Senate, The Senate returned on Tuesday and voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Michael G. Whitaker to be Administrator of the Federal Aviation Administration. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Jessica Luhmann to be Administrator of the Wage and Hour Division of the Department of Labor. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate took up H.R. 4366, the Military Construction Veterans Affairs Appropriations Act, which will act as the shell for a three-bill minibus that combines the bills for Veterans Affairs, Agriculture, Transportation, and Housing and Urban Development. Majority Leader Schumer had announced earlier in the week that he had reached agreement on a schedule of amendments to be offered, and so the Senate was, after several weeks of dilly-dallying around, finally off to the races on its appropriations bills. First up was an amendment offered by Republican J.D. Vance of Ohio to prohibit funds appropriated for the Department of Transportation for FY24 to be used to enforce a mask mandate in response to the COVID-19 virus. That amendment was agreed to by a vote of 59 to 38. Oklahoma Republican Senator Jim Langford offered an amendment that would have prevented future government shutdowns by providing for a period of continuing appropriations in the event of a lapse in appropriations under the normal appropriations process and establishing procedures and consequences in the event of a failure to enact appropriations. That amendment was not agreed to by a vote of 56 to 42. On Thursday, the Senate voted on Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul's S.J. Res. 44. That's a joint resolution directing the removal of U.S. armed forces from hostilities in the Republic of Niger that have not been authorized by Congress. The resolution was rejected by a vote of 11 to 86. Then the Senate went back to the Minibus Appropriations Bill and took up an amendment offered by Indiana Republican Mike Braun to prohibit earmarks. amendment was not agreed to by a vote of 35 to 68. I'm sorry, 35 to 62. Then the Senate took up a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval offered by Kansas Republican Senator Roger Marshall against the rules submitted by the Food and Nutrition Service relating to application of Bostock v. Clayton County to program discrimination complaint processing policy update. In other words, Senator Marshall was trying to block the U.S. Department of Agriculture from retaliating against schools that do not comply with the Biden administration's LGBTQIA ideology in schools. The resolution was rejected by a vote of 47 to 50, and then they were done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return Monday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m., At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on invoking cloture on the nomination of Matthew James Maddox to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of Maryland. Then, based on the majority leader's cloture filings, I'd anticipate a vote on the nomination of Jack Lew to be U.S. Ambassador to Israel. Let's talk about that nomination. Uh, The President's nominee to be U.S. Ambassador to Israel, former Obama Treasury Secretary Jack Lew, was voted out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on Wednesday by a vote of 12 to 9. Every Democrat on the committee voted for him, and all but one Republican voted against him. The one Republican who voted to send Lou's nomination to the floor with a favorable recommendation was Kentucky's Rand Paul. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer could schedule the Lou nomination for a Senate floor vote as early as this week. Now to the emergency supplemental. A week ago, Friday, President Biden sent to the Congress a request for an emergency supplemental spending bill. We discussed this briefly last week, but there's been some movement on it, so I want to keep you up to date. The request from Biden was for $106 billion, broken into four main parts, $61 billion for aid to Ukraine, $14 billion for aid to Israel, about $7.5 billion for the Indo-Pacific, that is, Taiwan, security and $14 billion to address the surge of illegal immigration at the southern border. In addition, there's another $10 billion or so in there for humanitarian assistance. The first question is, will the bill go through both House and Senate as one piece of legislation, or will it be split into two or more bills? The Biden White House wants to deal with the entire funding request in one bill. That's because it believes the portion of the bill addressing aid to Israel will be very popular and will likely pass overwhelmingly through both the Democrat-controlled Senate and the Republican-controlled House. And because the Israel aid will pass, the White House wants to send the Ukraine aid along with it, and let the Ukraine aid draft in behind the Israel aid like one race car moving in directly behind the race car in front of him. The one in the back lets the one in the front do all the work, breaking the wind resistance, and saves power while waiting to make his move. The Senate seems likely to try to move the bill as one giant piece of legislation. Both Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell have said they'd prefer to do it that way. McConnell told Republican senators at their regular Wednesday lunch meeting that he thought the aid for Israel and Ukraine should stay together because both situations are part of a larger global threat facing U.S. national security interests. But several of the conservatives in the Senate aren't buying and want to break up the bill. Led by Roger Marshall of Kansas, J.D. Vance of Ohio, Mike Lee of Utah, and Ted Cruz of Texas introduced legislation last week that would provide a total of $14.3 billion. That's $10.6 billion in military assistance. $3.5 billion in grants for foreign military sales, and $200 million to help beef up security at U.S. embassies and personnel in Israel and evacuate U.S. citizens from the Middle East. The four argue that splitting off the aid to Israel would prevent the bill from getting bogged down in the House, where a larger group of Republicans oppose continued assistance to Ukraine. "'My colleagues and I firmly believe that any aid to Israel should not be used as leverage to send tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine,' said Marshall. Interestingly, Marshall, Vance, and Lee have all opposed U.S. aid to Ukraine previously, while Cruz has always supported it. Quote, "'Russia still needs to be defeated. Taiwan still needs to be defended,' said Cruz. This bill is about one thing and one thing only.'" getting our Israeli allies the aid they need as fast as possible. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Capitol dome, the new speaker indicated that he supports continued U.S. assistance to Ukraine, but he recognizes that the majority of his conference wants tighter controls and accountability on the assistance. Speaker Johnson voted against $300 million in military aid for Ukraine when it was voted on as a standalone in September, right before the move to depose Speaker McCarthy. Speaking Thursday night, in an interview with Sean Hannity on Fox News Channel, Johnson said, quote, Now, we can't allow Vladimir Putin to prevail in Ukraine, because I don't believe it would stop there. And it would probably encourage and empower China to perhaps make a move on Taiwan. We have these concerns. We're not going to abandon them, end quote. But then he added, quote, Our consensus among House Republicans is that we need to bifurcate those issues, end quote. He told Hannity that he delivered that message earlier in the day to White House officials after meeting with Biden. Further, he said, quote, Israel is a separate matter. But here's the thing that distinguishes House Republicans from the other team. We're going to find pay-fors in the budget. We're not just printing money to send it overseas. We're going to fund the cuts elsewhere to do that. End quote. Johnson said House Republicans would move a standalone package of $14.5 billion for Israel. That's slightly more than what the Biden administration has requested. Speaking a few days later on Fox Business's Sunday Morning Futures, Johnson reiterated his commitment to move a separate aid package for Israel and said the House would vote on it on Thursday of this week. The first chamber to pass a funding bill will have an advantage here, because the other chamber will then be responding to the chamber that passed a funding bill first. Now let's talk about government spending. Let's not lose sight of the forest for the trees. While Congress's short-term attention is focused on the Biden request for an emergency supplemental spending bill, let's not forget there's also a much larger problem to contend with, the annual appropriations process and the spending bills it generates. The House has now passed five of its 12 spending bills and plans to take up another three this week. The Senate continues to work on its first minibus, which combines three of the 12 spending bills it must pass. Meanwhile, the current continuing resolution will expire on November 17. There is no way the House and Senate will have passed all 12 appropriations bills, gone to conference, hashed out their differences in 12 different conference committees, brought those conference reports to the floor of each House, voted to approve 12 different conference reports, and then gotten President Biden to sign them all into law before midnight on November 17. No way. So, we're going to pass another continuing resolution to keep the government open, or the government will partially shut down for a short period of time. Speaker Johnson reiterated over the weekend his desire to pass a second continuing resolution, lasting until at least January 15, and maybe as late as April 15. And the reason for that, he explained, is it gets us beyond the -the end-of-the-year push. And oftentimes, the Senate tries to jam the House and force an omnibus spending bill, We're not doing that here anymore. We're having single-subject bills, and so pushing that into January, I think, would assist us in that endeavor. He continued, There may be some conditions put on that. Perhaps that 1% spending cut across the board instead of becoming effective in April. Maybe we'd make that January 15 to incentivize the Senate to do their work. Stay tuned. Now to the latest on the Trump indictments. On Tuesday morning, former Trump 2020 campaign attorney Jenna Ellis pled guilty in the Georgia election interference case to a minor offense, a misdemeanor, aiding and abetting the provision of false information to the state, for which she will serve no jail time like the three others who have pled guilty before her in this large case. Increasingly, D.A. Fonnie Willis' willingness to accept plea deals in which the defendants plead guilty to a misdemeanor and serve no jail time and do not even agree that they were part of the larger conspiracy Willis conjured in her RICO charge makes clear that Willis wildly overcharged her original case. Left-wing legal and political analysts are frothing at the mouth about the so-called parade of Trump allies and cronies who are agreeing to plead guilty to minor offenses. Many of these people never met the man, let alone agreed to conspire with him to break the law, because, please remember, it is not a crime in the state of Georgia to attempt to overturn the results of an election. In fact, Georgia law specifically allows for legal election contests. What usually happens in cases like this is the prosecutor tries to get the little fish to agree to plead guilty to the major crime in exchange for a promise to help the government prosecute its case against the other, larger fish and a guarantee of no or little jail time. In this case, the defendants are winning the guarantee of no jail time but they're not being required to plead guilty to the larger crime charged. Instead, they're pleading guilty to misdemeanors and totally ignoring the larger RICO conspiracy Willis created. So while the fact is that Willis is winning convictions, look, another guilty plea, it's also a fact that this is doing nothing to help build her case against the biggest fish of all, Donald Trump. Stay tuned. Now to the latest on the Biden crime family saga. Two major developments on this front last week. First, the House Judiciary Committee took testimony from former United States Attorney Scott Brady, who had been tasked by Attorney General Bill Barr early in 2020 with pulling together all the various investigative threads related to Hunter Biden and Burisma, the Ukrainian energy company on whose board Hunter sat. Brady testified that his investigative team had corroborated enough of an FBI confidential human source's claim of an alleged bribery scheme regarding Joe Biden to warrant further investigation, but that he encountered unprecedented delays and what he called reluctance inside both the FBI and the Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office that was simultaneously investigating Hunter Biden. In fact, Brady said the information he developed was significant enough that it was passed to three separate U.S. Attorney's offices, including those in Brooklyn and Manhattan, in addition to the one in Delaware. But he ran into resistance in those U.S. Attorney's offices and required, that required him constantly to go back to his superiors at DOJ for assistance navigating those bureaucratic minefields. Brady was also critical of the FBI, noting that the bureau never told his office that it had Hunter Biden's laptop and had already corroborated its contents as real. He said he first learned of the existence of the laptop when the New York Post broke the story in October 2020, despite the fact that the FBI had had the laptop since December 2019. He said he ran into the same kind of skepticism and resistance from U.S. Attorney David Weiss, and Weiss's deputy, Leslie Wolf. Weiss was not interested in the now-famous FD1023 form related to charges of bribery against Joe Biden offered by a credible, confidential human source. Brady testified that he and his team had vetted open-source intelligence to corroborate the source's credibility and were satisfied that his allegations were credible enough to warrant further investigation. But when Brady's team went to brief Weiss and Weiss's team, Weiss skipped the briefing and then never followed up. Brady also directly answered claims by the Oversight Committee's top Democrat, Jamie Raskin of Maryland, who said that Brady's office had not found the FD-1023 report credible and had shut down that line of inquiry. Quote, My understanding of Mr. Raskin's public statements is that based on the determination that I and my team found the allegations in the 1023 not credible, or other information not credible, we did not escalate the assessment to a limited or full investigation. That's not true," he said. The same day Brady was testifying to the House Judiciary Committee behind closed doors, Iowa Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, who for 38 years was a Senate colleague of Joe Biden's, sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland and FBI Director Christopher Wray seeking more information on DOJ's and FBI's handling of the investigation of Hunter Biden and his father, Joe. Specifically, Grassley said he had been made aware that at one point, the agencies had maintained more than 40 sources who had criminal information about Joe Biden and his brother and his son. And Grassley wanted to know how information had been vetted. Stay tuned. Now, more on the contest for Speaker. When the House went home last week, nominations for speaker were once again open. The deadline to toss your name into the hat was noon Sunday. As of noon Sunday, there were nine candidates for speaker. When House Republicans came back on Monday evening, they held a candidate forum. On Tuesday, they began voting. By that point, two of the nine candidates had dropped out. They were Dan Muser of Pennsylvania and Gary Palmer of Alabama. The first round of balloting ended with Majority Whip Tom Emmer in the lead, followed by House Republican Conference Vice Chairman Mike Johnson and Byron Donalds of Florida. In the second round of balloting, Emmer picked up a dozen more votes, and Johnson and Donalds also gained. On the third ballot, Emmer won a majority of the votes, defeating Johnson by a vote of 117 to 97, with five voting for other candidates and one voting present. But then there was a roll call vote to make sure Emmer could command 217 votes on the floor of the House. After the previous week's embarrassment, where Speaker-designate Jim Jordan went through three ballots, losing support on each one before finally exceeding defeat, the House GOP was going to make sure its nominee could win a vote on the floor. Turns out, Emmer couldn't. The roll call vote showed about two dozen votes against him. They wouldn't budge. Then, former President Trump weighed in with a post to Truth Social, in which he whacked Emmer hard, calling him a rhino, and saying of Emmer that Emmer, quote, never respected the power of a Trump endorsement or the breadth and scope of MAGA. Voting for a globalist rhino like Tom Emmer could be a tragic mistake, end quote. So, after a few hours as the Speaker-designate, Emmer conceded defeat, and nominations were once again open with a 5.30 p.m. deadline. When the deadline passed, there were six candidates in contention. Then things got a bit hinky when former Speaker McCarthy floated a plan that would have him return as Speaker, with Jim Jordan serving as Assistant Speaker, whatever that was. On the first ballot, Mike Johnson was far ahead of Byron Donalds and the other candidates. On the second ballot, Johnson gained more votes while the others remained stuck in place. On the third ballot, Johnson won the nomination with 128 votes. Then there was another roll call vote to confirm Johnson could win 217 votes on the floor. No one voted against him. The contest was sealed. And three weeks to the day after Kevin McCarthy was deposed, Mike Johnson was selected to be his replacement. Now to a brief update on 2024. There were two significant developments in the 2024 campaign for president last week. On Friday, Minnesota Democrat Congressman Dean Phillips filed paperwork to compete for the Democratic nomination for president in the New Hampshire primary, becoming the first serious intra-party challenger to an incumbent Democrat running for re-election since Ted Kennedy primaried Jimmy Carter in 1980. Other parallels to Jimmy Carter's ill-fated run for re-election are evident as well. Like Carter before him, incumbent Joe Biden launched his presidency with a massive government spending program that led to once-in-a-generation inflation, with consequent low approval ratings on his handling of the economy. Like Carter before him, Biden attacked America's energy production sector and drove the cost of gasoline through the roof. Like Carter before him, Biden weakened America in the eyes of its allies and its adversaries and oversaw a period of American retrenchment abroad. Like Carter before him, Biden had to contend with a major Russian invasion of a neighboring state. Like Carter before him, Biden watched in feeble futility as Islamic terrorists took and held hostage innocent American citizens overseas. I doubt Phillips' campaign against Biden will do as much damage to Biden as Kennedy's did to Carter. For one thing, Biden is not even campaigning in New Hampshire. He was so determined not to be embarrassed by New Hampshire again that he directed the Democratic National Committee to upend a century-old tradition and remove the Granite State from its first-in-the-nation status. Consequently, under the official 2024 DNC calendar of delegate selection contests, South Carolina goes first. But state law in New Hampshire requires that the state hold its primary at least one week before any similar event and New Hampshire state officials intend to comply with that state law. So, the New Hampshire primary will go first, and Joe Biden will not compete in it. So, even were Phillips to score an upset victory over Biden, it would be discounted by Biden's allies in the mainstream media. Nevertheless, the Phillips challenge will be interesting to watch. According to recent public opinion surveys, significant majorities of Democrat voters believe Biden is too old to serve a second term, And significant majorities of Democrat voters do not want Biden to run for a second term. Phillips could, for a time at least, serve as a vessel for that grassroots frustration. We'll see. On the other side of the aisle, on Saturday, former Vice President Mike Pence announced that it wasn't his time. And he suspended his campaign for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. Now to The Jenny Beth Show. Episode 37 of The Jenny Beth Show dropped last Wednesday. Featuring Jenny Beth's interview with Connie Hare, it's a real winner of a conversation. Connie is a conservative operative with a career that is decades long. I first worked with Connie almost 20 years ago, back in 2004, on an ill-fated U.S. Senate campaign in Illinois, trying to prevent a then-little-known state senator from being elected to the United States Senate. We failed. And four years later, that little-known state senator, firmly ensconced in the United States Senate, defeated John McCain for the presidency. Connie now serves as the Louisiana State Director for the State Freedom Caucus Network. Prior to that, Connie served as Chief of Staff to Texas Republican Congressman Louie Gomert, one of Jenny Beth's all-time favorite rock star congressmen. Not surprisingly, it's a great conversation and a great episode. Highly recommend it. And that's our Washington report for this week.